Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some news about Wu Jing facing off against the PLA at the China box office, some Asian films scoring victories over Hollywood, Sony Television acquiring Funimation, and in related news, G-Kids taking over the Ghibli Library from Disney. And for our film reviews this week, it's an all-West Screen show where Kevin's going to look at Dunkirk, and I'll be talking about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about a film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk within the city of a thousand planets is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello there, Paul. How's it going? All right. How are you doing, sir? You've been out and about once again. Yeah, well, I should say Sawadika, because uh, last weekend I told you I was doing something special about Dunkirk. Uh, actually, made a very last-minute trip uh, with an old friend from film school. We went to uh, Bangkok uh, to watch Dunkirk because uh, Bangkok's uh, Paragon Cineplex, the IMAX cinema, is the only place in Asia, the only cinema in Asia, and I don't count Australia as Asia. So you shouldn't either. Um, Bangkok is the only place in Asia that was showing Dunkirk in um, 70 millimeter IMAX film, which was how Nolan, Christopher Nolan shot about 70 percent of the film. So we went all the way there to to watch the film in that format and spent the weekend, a long weekend there. Um, that's my first trip to Thailand, actually. So uh, it was interesting seeing um Bangkok for the first time and getting this this amazing theatrical experience and ex- and experiencing that this this really vibrant city and yeah it, it was fun. Did you have to like rise and do kind of a pledge thing to the king? Yes, for every film, every film. Uh, so Thai cinemas play about twenty minutes of trailers and commercials, making sure everyone's in the seats, and then just before the film starts, they have this this screen. They would say, "Oh, please." have big screen says please rise and, and pay your respects to the king and you have to do it because they have it in english and thai so you can't you know fake you can't you know feign you know uh ignorance and they they play um a clip um clips of uh well because they're still mourning the late king from last year so the new king hasn't taken the throne yet uh so they're st- playing uh essentially remembrance uh of the late king so a lot of pictures and with the what i presume is the uh thai national anthem i assume um and then it's like a two-minute clip and then you sit back down and that even happened in a uh small indie cinema that i went to i mean they didn't have the clip but they would have the screen saying please stand up pay your respects to the king then they play the anthem with a black screen on it the 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 anthem's finished and they say oh um long live the king and then you can sit down so it's, it's a very interesting experience especially in a full house uh imax cinema to see that view of everyone standing up yeah i've i've read about that and seen some uh 
seen some documentary footage about you know that kind of practice. Not, it's not just at uh, film screenings, pretty much at anything you go to, like sporting events and, and anything. They basically do a kind of national anthem thing, celebrating the king. And yeah, in movies, you got to kind of stand up for those a uh, couple of minutes. So it's interesting that you had a chance to uh, have that experience. But my real question here for you, Mr. Ma, is that if you were to calculate everything, that is the airfare, the hotel stay, the food you ate, plus the IMAX ticket, is this the most expensive movie you've ever watched? <laughs> well, the thing, I've flown to film festivals and I paid for those tickets. So uh, considering how cheap um, the hotel and the food and actually the film ticket, the IMAX ticket is still cheaper on average um, than, than tickets in Hong Kong. Plus, I watched other films. I watched Valerian, actually, uh, this week's film uh, in, in, in Thailand. And also Wukong, the Derek Kong film, uh, Derek Kwok film with, uh, with Eddie Pang and, and Sean Yu. I watched that there, too. So, no, it's actually still not the most expensive film trip I've ever taken. All right. Well, did you watch Valerian in Thai or was it in English? <laughs> In English, into the with oh. Thai subtitles. I Although I sh- maybe I should have watched yeah, the Thai dub. Yeah, if you watched it in Thai, the Thai dub, it might have come across better. But we'll talk about that in well, just then a I wouldn't bit. be. I wouldn't understand <laughs> what's happening in the film at all. But I guess that's not too different from the English version. So. Indeed, indeed. Um, more on that to come. So yeah, that's going to wrap it up for our small talk this week. I will throw the talking stick once again back to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. Over here at the news desk, we start with some success in the box office for Asian cinema uh, in at least the East Asian area. So while Dunkirk continues to win at box office, I think in Thailand, where I went, uh, in Hong Kong, and, and a lot of different a- Asian areas, um, Asian films have uh, been scoring little victories um, in, in other regions in Asia. For example, in China, where the unofficial, quote-unquote unofficial, uh, blackout period for foreign films is still in place. Um, Wu Jing's Wolf Warrior 2 went up against founding of an army, um, which is, and the result was quite surprising. Uh, I hinted at this at the Facebook page for Asia and Cinema. Um, <clears throat> I hinted that uh, Wolf Warrior was getting off to a great start, and actually it was beating founding of an army, and I didn't think that this would last, because um, if you saw the post, I posted a memo that came down from the head of the, or the headquarter of China Film Group asking China Film Group Cinemas to um, give at least 45% of all screenings to founding of an army. So it, it was almost looking like the, the authorities were trying to um, get theaters to promote this film as much as possible. But that was not the case. Because that memo only applied to China Film Group Cinemas. And while China Film Group Cinemas and Bona Film Group Cinemas, um, which is a co-producer in the film, while they did oblige, they are actually not the biggest chains in China. So all the other chains, seeing Wolf Warrior's um, huge, huge success, gave um, quite a large screening percentages, up to 45% of all screenings to Wolf Warrior 2. And the result was a record-breaking weekend for Wu Jing film, which, if you asked me 10 years ago whether that would ever happen, I would say, you're, you're just joking, right? <laughs> like, who knew that Wu Jing would ever make star and head and direct a, a super blockbuster ever? You know, because he, he kind of had a career in China, in Hong Kong, but he never really rose up to that that potential at least commercial wise you know i think hong kong audiences never really really um really warmed up to him 
Uh, so so it was surprising to see how well it did. Wolf Warrior 2 over the weekend actually set a new record for best single day box office um, revenue for a Chinese film. Uh, on Saturday, it made uh, $360 million. Sorry, I think Sunday. Sorry, Sunday, July 30th, uh, the film made 366 million RMB, which is about, I think, 50 or 60 million US dollars, which is amazing. This is like Hollywood, Marvel, American, North American gross number here, right? Um, and, and Founding of an Army uh, actually only made about a fourth of the box office that uh, uh, Wolf Warriors did. So uh, as of Sunday, July 2030th, it had made two hundred and two point five seven million, which is not a not small change. I mean, it's still quite a bit of money. But Wolf Warrior Two, um, in that same period of time, had made nine hundred and ninety four million dollar movie. Now it sounds like for anyone who's not a fan of the Communist Party, me included, it sounds like oh yay, you know this this film beat the PLA and ha 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 propaganda film loses the Chinese Chinese box office. But at the end of the day, if you see Wolf Warrior One. Wolf Warrior 2 is pretty much the same thing. I haven't seen the film, but I've read enough to know that it's pretty much the same thing. It's a rah-rah, nationalist, um, trigger-happy um, war action film that sells China as this big military power. And Wu Jing, now a one-man army, goes to Africa and saves the day. And apparently at one real pivotal moment, um, there's a close-up of a Chinese passport. And it says, tells the citizens... Do not fear when you run into trouble because ha- holding this passport means you have you have a powerful nation, your powerful nation behind you, backing you up. So it's it's almost like, OK, government sanctioned uh, uh, our official army propaganda versus nationalist propaganda about one man POA. So essentially the, ar- the Chinese army wins the day anyway. So at the end of the day, is it is it really that you know is it really that make the Chinese government look that bad? No, because this is a film that glorifies the PLA or the Chinese military prowess just as much, if not more, than founding of an army. So uh, at the end of the day, China still wins the day. It's interesting. We'll keep abreast of uh, what he does with uh, future work, and if you're not able to go out and see. Uh Wolf Warrior 2 or even Wolf Warrior at the moment, uh, go back and check out, I think it's Fatal Contact, um, a film he does with uh, Ronald Cheng in one of my favorite roles that Ronald Cheng's ever done. It's a, it's a solid actioner. Yeah, so you can check that out. Yeah, but there's no POA in there. So, no. <laughs> so Wu Jing would probably never admit to making that film. Okay, that's true. You know, it's actually playing down here in, in Miami. I've been debating uh, if it's worth the, the five-hour commitment, but I don't think I'm going to make it this week. Yeah, I, what I hear is that it doesn't even have a distribution deal currently in Hong Kong, so you'll probably be able to see it before I do, Paul. All right, on to other Asian film news. You've got some news for us about uh, two films doing very well, Battleship Island and Bad Genius. Yeah, so continuing from um, the news story, uh, elsewhere in Korea, local film Battleship Island, uh, the new film by Liu Ru- Ru- Wan, who did Berlin File and Veteran, uh, opened huge in korea it, it set a new record for the best opening day um box office revenue ever beating uh, tom cruise's the mummy and train to busan i think it made about nine hundred and sixty thousand emissions which is amazing because uh just about 20 years ago i think uh when um korean films the korean film industry was starting to take off a million emissions total 
was the holy grail. It was like the 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 benchmark for success. And now we have films that can make nearly one million missions in a day. Um, it's it's a pretty remarkable thing, and it did very well over the weekend. I think it made about three point three million emissions um, over the weekend uh, over three days, which is spectacular. It did not set a new record for the best single day uh, uh, box office. I think Train to Busan still holds that record. Um, Battleship Island, unfortunately, did not beat that record. Um, but what it did is that it it was cloud. Its success was actually clouded by a lot of discussion about once again screen monopolies in Korea. Um, to explain, Korea has three major cinema chains. I think I mentioned this during the the Okja when the Okja thing was happening. Uh, CJ or CG, CGV. Um, you have Latte and you have Megabox. Now CJ Entertainment. Which is um, which owns CGV or has the same parent company as CGV CGV Cinemas? Um, they released and produced Battleship Island, so um, it's not surprising that um, there was a huge that CGV Cinemas gave a huge advantage to Battleship Island over the weekend, allotting a lot of their screens, a lot of their putting most of their screenings for the film, and um, actually the the three I think Latte and CGV have been actually investigated by the authorities over this action, this this sort of act of uh, giving their screens to films they distribute. Um, messing up the sort of ecosystem and unfair practices, but they were never officially charged. But it was really, really obvious that CGV was giving advantage because if you look at um, uh, any CGV cinema, they each, each multiplex were pretty much giving half their screens to that one film, to Battleship Island. So it was a very, very clear, um, even though the film itself was in high demand, and you can tell that because the other cinemas also gave... A majority of their screenings, I don't know, forty percent or so, to Battleship Island. But it was clear that CGV was giving the most screenings out of all three chains. So there was a discussion about whether this un- this practice, you know, again, is really unfair, and whether it's really happening, whether um, uh, these companies are truly giving unfair advantages advantage over their own films. And to extend that. That actually also happens in Hong Kong quite clearly because Hong Kong, uh, most of the major distributor, uh, so Edgo, uh, UA Films, Intercontinental, and Golden Harvest, they or Pan Asia, they each own their own cinema chains. Um, and last weekend, when Val- Valerian opened in Hong Kong, um, the two, the it was co-released by UA Films, which runs United Artists Cinema, and Intercontinental Films, which owns the MCL Cinema, both. Both cinemas uh, uh, actually, I wouldn't say boycott, but they didn't run a single screening of Atomic Blonde, the Charlize Theron action film. They instead gave a lot of screens to Valerian. They played the film only in 3D, and they they blocked Atomic Blonde because it, of course, is a direct competitor. It's an action film, appeals to, to the same demographic. They seem to have blocked that film out of their cinemas. So it, it's, 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 it's interesting how... These days, um, you know, back then Hong Kong, we had the idea of cinema chains. So a cinema chain would release one film, but a cinema chain is not it's not tied to any one sort of cinema chain. What we call is what we call a a cinema alliance, and you have alliances, and each alliance would release one film, and then they would battle each other, um, and that's the so-called advantage. But now you have distributor directly owning cinemas and giving what it, what appears to be um, uh, advantages. Uh, to to their own films by allotting a lot of screen times and blocking out other films, um, 
and that's sort of the uh, the, the shape of the the, the Asian uh, uh, exhibition uh, sector. I don't know why. I think this doesn't happen in America because I think there must be some regulations that bans um, these film companies from owning their cinemas, their own cinema chains. But I'm certain that if, say, Warner Brothers and Fox and 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 Disney, they own their own cinema chains, they are definitely going to be doing the same 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 action. Yeah, I think at one time uh, that they, you know, distribution was more tied to production houses, and I think that they got in some some kind of uh, legal trouble over time for monopolies and things, and that's all changed. But, I, I mean, there has been some cases that I've read about where, uh, like the, what was it, uh, uh, Wanda Group or one of the big Chinese groups actually bought a big part of AMC or one of the big chains over here. And I was wondering if that was going to increase the amount of push that they had for getting productions and co-productions from China on screens over here. Um, but I guess there's still quite a bit of regulation in place to prevent out-and-out monopo- monopolies like you see in Hong Kong. Well, AMC has definitely done more to release Chinese. I think um, uh, a lot of the China Lion films or some of the Chinese films that get day-and-date release, they tend to be released in more, at least in California, when I, where, where, where I when I saw um, when I was in the States, I saw that AMC was the one handling these, these Chinese films. Not Sorry, not the other chains. Um, I, I wondered if that was the Wanda connection or not, or if that was a diversity thing they're trying to do with their release or, or whatnot. Um, because, um, yeah, so so that's kind of an interesting observation. But um, I guess that I – well, because cinemas do have to make money. And if these films don't attract any audience or if other chains have better locations or better whatever, then clearly, you know, distributors would choose those cinemas instead of um whatever they're they're aligned aligned with Hmm. um so yeah it's kind of i'm not sure if that also happens in europe but this is a very um there's a very clear vertical integration uh in the industry here in asia and and it's certainly one that affects consumers so if you're trying to say you're a loyal uh member a loyal uh, membership or something for cgv right and you want to watch dunkirk or you want to watch um despicable me or you want to watch something else you're less likely to be able to see that film in a CGV cinema. Let's say if you live next to a CGV cinema and somehow you don't get to see the film you want because the other screenings all went to uh, Battleship Island, then that affects the consumers directly. Yeah. All right. In further news, I guess, uh, also speaking of rights and uh, distribution. And oh, wait. The, the Bad Genius. I, I oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. sorry yes. I don't know. So, so moving on to Taiwan. Uh, well, Dunkirk did did uh, actually win the second weekend at box office, uh, even though it was actually quite a weak weekend because of the typhoon, the actually double typhoons in Taiwan. Uh, a little Thai film called Bad Genius has been doing extremely well uh, in Taiwan. It's been, it's been a very interesting year in Taiwan box office because while, you know, Hollywood films um, traditionally continue to do well, uh, these Asian films have actually been um, uh you know, breaking through and finding audiences in in Taiwan. So earlier this year, we have Dango, the Bollywood film, and now you have Thai film. This Thai film called Bad Genius, uh, which was the opening film, or sorry, the centerpiece, or is the opening film of this year's New York Asian Film Festival? I think. Uh, no, it's the op- opening film because the center centerpiece film was Birdshot, the the Filipino film. Um, 
so the film is a heist film, but it's actually set in high school. It's about smart, poor, smart students in an elite school who um, help, who decide to sell um, answers to standardized tests to rich students in order to make money. So these um, smart elite students they travel to Sydney they take uh, and they take a standardized college test that's sort of like the SAT and they decide to steal the answers and sell it back to their classmates so it's a very creative um, um, heist film and it's getting a lot of good reviews and it opened in Taiwan uh, two weeks ago and actually second weekend is climbed up uh, in terms of box office revenue and on Monday, uh, so a couple of days ago, it actually beat Dunkirk to take the top of the box office in Taiwan, which I've never, I've never seen a Thai film uh, take the top of a box office in Taiwan before. So it's clearly word of mouth working here, and also the perhaps the typhoon, I don't know, but it's doing very well um, despite a sort of modest release. I think only fourteen cinemas in in Taipei uh, compared to the usual twenty something upper twenties for a Hollywood film. Um, so it's great that an Asian film uh, is doing so well uh, elsewhere. The film opens uh, in two weeks in Hong Kong, and last week they started holding uh, preview screenings, and it was doing quite well. So uh, I hope that the momentum continues, and we'll see more diverse, more Asian films uh, here and in Taiwan and all over Asia. Yeah, it's it's also kind of become a little bit of a meme. I've seen um, the humor site Nine Gag actually kind of memified the trailer for it and had it running through my Facebook feed. Um, so it's interesting that an Asian film is kind of getting this much buzz, um, particularly on social media. So I'm kind of excited to see this. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely excited. I haven't seen the film yet, but I'm definitely going to try and catch it this weekend. All right, and in some further news about acquisition and distribution and control of content... You've got some news about Sony Television and Anime? Yes, uh, Sony Pictures Television Network, uh, which actually owns uh, quite a few channels. So, for example, uh, AXN. Here in Asia, we would know AXN, Animax, uh, Sony Channel. Um, in the U.S., I think they um, uh, also run the Sony Movie Channel, uh, CineSony, and Get TV. They have acquired uh, Funimation, a U.S.-based uh, animation anime distributor for 143 million US dollars. Uh, Sony Pictures TV will hold a 95% majority stake, and um, and I guess this will also give them the right to um, a lot of really big anime titles, including Dragon Ball Z, Cowboy Bebop, One Piece, My Hero Academia, Attack on Titan, and last year they also distributed, uh, I think. New God Shin Godzilla, new Godzilla film, and also the uh, Japanese smash hit Your Name. Um, so this is a big deal for Sony because, like I said, they own Animax, and I think having animation um, or Funimation may enable them to uh, um, further take or try and break into the U.S. market as an anime distributor. Perhaps Animax might expand to the U.S. Um, uh, and I, I, I'm sure that they bought the, the the distributor for such a high high you know number high price because I think they realized the worth that the anime market is getting bigger in the U.S. especially the legal anime market because let's face it a lot of my friends download the anime illegally but now uh, anime has the the legal availability of of anime in U.S. has grown significantly and I'm sure it's getting into a bigger business uh, so. It, it seems to make sense for Sony Pictures Television to to buy, um, you know, probably the biggest 
anime distributor in the U.S. You know, it's interesting because um, there are basically two routes to go for anime. Well, there, there are a couple more have popped up, especially with Amazon getting into the mix with their own sort of anime strike uh, subscription channel. But primarily there was Crunchyroll and there was Funimation. And the two kind of combined with uh, some other television channels or internet channels like I want to say Geek and Sundry and Nerdist and uh, Riff Tracks and some others that are a bit more like subline popular cultures, you know, very specific kind of shows. Uh, but they created this thing called the the Verve app or the VRV app, which is basically an app platform that lets you uh, watch those channels, the, the programming on those channels with embedded ads. So I'm very, and I think the Verve app is really kind of pushed forth by Crunchyroll, who's kind of the main competitor of Funimation, because while they have a lot of similar titles that they both get distribution rights to, some of them have exclusive titles. So I'm curious to see what happens as sort of the end run outcome now that Sony has gotten involved and picked them up, if this is going to like, you know, pull them out uh, from being able to be streamed on the Verve app or, you know, what's going to happen. Sony, I think, probably has a little bit more clout than, say, Crunchyroll does. And if this is going to put increased pressure on them to buy up titles or have to bid for titles or things like that. So... It'll be uh, interesting for anime fans in the States here, especially to see what happens going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how, how often you access anime, but so is, is it clear that the anime market has grown? I mean, especially legal anime has grown quite significantly in the U.S.? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, when I got back over here, um, I, I subscribed to Crunchyroll. And I guess you can do it overseas. You know, you have, um, what's the channel you mentioned over there, uh, uh, that they have on like now TV and stuff. They've got their Animax. Animax, Animax right? Animax. I mean, yeah. you have access to stuff, but um, over here, without you know not needing to use a VPN and that stuff, just makes it so much easier. And you can take it on the go. The you know with the apps being much more stable these days. Um, and it really looks like the the three main channels have been uh, Anime Strike on Amazon. Funimation and Crunchyroll. And again, there's a lot of crossover, but there is some that, you know, is um, very exclusive. So especially with older shows, like Crunchyroll has um, some rights to some of the older shows that I'm going back and revisiting, whereas Funimation does not. And that kind of helped me determine my choice. But for somebody else, the truth that truth might be the same on the other side, right? There might be some exclusives or some old shows that Funimation has that would draw them over. So it's definitely a big thing. I think that there's even, um, Crunchyroll even has their own con now. It's like, if you're big enough to have your own convention, then <laughs> you're, you're, you're pretty big, I guess, in the market. So it's really grown considerably for, especially, you know, I'm an old timer. I, you know, back in the days when I'd go to conventions and have to buy fan subbed VHS tapes of stuff. And, you know, it's glad, it's good to know that those days are well behind us. Okay, so um, in a really kind of related news, uh, talking about anime distributors in Hong Kong, G Kids, which is an indie distributor, you might have heard of them because they have released uh, the last three Ghibli films in the U.S. Um, uh, Poppy Hill, um, sorry, let me look from about Poppy Hill, Tale of Princess Kaguya, and where Marnie was there. Um, so you might have heard of G Kids already if you follow Studio Ghibli quite often. G Kids announced um, a couple weeks ago that. They have 
uh, struck a deal with Studio Ghibli to release uh, the rest of their films on home video in uh, North America. Now, G-Kids actually acquired the North American theatrical distribution rights of the Studio Ghibli library from Walt Disney um, in 2011. Uh, even though actually Walt Disney retained the home media rights. So when the Ghibli film started getting released on, re-released on Blu-ray a few years ago, it was Walt Disney uh, video that, that um, handled those releases. But now G-Kids, um, I guess, now has a much closer relationship to, to Studio Ghibli, and they have now um, uh, taken those home video rights uh, for North America as well. Um and G-Kids, in addition to uh, re-releasing some Ghibli films in cinemas in the U.S., I think they did uh, a few films last week, uh, essentially late July, uh, they are going to be re-releasing these Ghibli titles on Blu-ray in the U.S. Um, G-Kids says they're not just going to be re-releasing previous editions. I think they said they're going to try and do put in new content as much as possible. Um, they're definitely... They said that they, they have a lot of um, limitations in terms of what print is being used, what master print is used, or what kind of um, subtitles are being used. But I think G-Kids said they're going to try and do their best to make sure that um, these new releases are worth getting for fans. So, um, yeah, it's good that, I guess it's always good that Walt Disney loses something and an indie distributor picks up picks up something as big as a Studio Ghibli library uh, in North America. But So uh, heads up to uh, Studio Ghibli fans in North America. If you are planning to buy the Blu-rays of Studio Ghibli films, you might want to hold off because these new versions are coming uh, down the road. Yeah, but I mean, come on, don't you got to have them all? It's kind of like Pokemon, right? <laughs> Yeah, sure. They're going to release them all again, but I mean, I'm not going to buy them all because I already got the Japanese versions, right? Ha yeah. ha ha ha. Um, which, by the way, actually, interestingly enough, the Japanese Blu-rays are still, or Japanese uh, video releases are still being handled by Walt Disney. So um, I think that remains unchanged in Japan. Um, and um, in Hong Kong, the uh, Intercontinental Films, which usually handles uh, Disney films, also release the Ghibli films on Blu-ray. So these deals remain unchanged in the rest of the world. So it's only North America where the, the video rights have been shifted. So it may, North America may be the only place in the world to get new additions or perhaps new features uh, on, on Ghibli films when but they I come mean, on Blu-ray again. I mean, would you would you go as far as saying, I mean, <clears throat> when you don't think they're actually going to do uh, new in-studio voice dubs or anything like that, right? I, I doubt it because I think these things are very much uh, uh, um, they hold very Studio Ghibli I think they hold these things very tight to the chest I think uh, when they dubbed the newer films they were all done with the supervision of they hired producers they hired I think Kathy Kennedy who did, who was doing the new Star Wars franchise to oversee the dub for The Wind Rises I think so to them it's a very big deal to get the best possible talent for the dub and to approve these dubs uh, for any region uh even in north especially in north america so i doubt that there'll be any changes to the actual film itself i think if they're getting re-released i think we might see new features new interviews or things like that but um as far as the actual print the subtitles or even the dub goes i think studio ghibli will insist on g kids releasing whatever versions they approved before or if they do a new one it would take even longer because they might have to redub it and then ghibli have to reapprove it and all that stuff so um i actually hope they don't have to do all that stuff again because it would take forever for these movies to come out if that's the case i mean we seldom hear of the the big monolith that is disney um you know letting go of stuff 
right? I mean, usually it's more about acquisitions. One year it's Marvel, the next year it's Star Wars. Um, is Does this sort of letting go of this really big property, at least for fans of anime, point to the fact that it wasn't making them enough money or something else? No, that's, that's what I would think. I think that, well, first of all, Whenever a, a Ghibli film comes out um, in the U.S., um, they they would need they would want to try or Ghibli would want would like a big Oscar campaign, right? I think uh, Princess Prince Tale of Princess Kaguya uh, actually did get a get get an Academy Award nomination um, when it was released, um, and I think it just helps. I think what might have convinced Ghibli is that if they were ever to continue releasing films and they do have at least one more because Miyazaki is working on a new film that they would like a partner in the in the US who can help them campaign for Academy Awards and you know and Disney you know Ghibli films sort of takes attention away from not only award attention but also commercial attention all that other stuff from their own films and they're already handling so many franchises um so what I think might have happened is that maybe Studio Ghibli wanted um as it's kind of Jerry Maguire, right? <laughs> you know, they want an agent who can give them pers- more personal attention, so to speak. So I wouldn't be so so someone who would be dedicated to campaigning for them in the U.S. and who would be dedicated to releasing their films in the U.S. Disney, they had these properties, but they always released these these films as art films, and they always sort of put them in the fringes, and they never try and you know try and mine the commercial possibilities. And I don't blame them. I mean, because these films ended up not. I mean, as hard as Disney tried to release The Wind Rises, I think, in the U.S., and if you remember Princess Mononoke or even uh, Spirited Away and all those other films, they never really hit the mainstream as much as Disney wanted to. So it could be a combination of those two factors, Paul. All right. That's all interesting stuff. We will keep our nose to the grindstone and let you know of further developments as they happen. For now, let's take a short musical break. And we'll be back with Kevin's review of Christopher Nolan's latest, Dunkirk. And welcome back. So as we said at the top of the show, and if you listened last week, uh, this week a special sort of all-West screen episode. Uh, Kevin's going to tell us first about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, a film which has, I guess, been greatly anticipated just because of his name being attached to it. Um, And for longtime listeners of the show, you know that this is a film, because of the nature of the genre, um, that I'm going to avoid maybe forever, maybe just for a really long time because of my aversion to these films and and you know blame steven spielberg blame uh saving private ryan right um, yeah the spielberg the, every every you know, ever since i saw that movie i've just never wanted to watch another war movie ever again and um because it's that film was that impactful for me so um kevin's going to tell us about dunkirk okay so dunkirk is the latest film from christopher nolan and um I guess European listeners or British listeners, they would be um, quite familiar with what happened at Dunkirk. Um, but I'll do a very quick, brief um, explanation. Um, 
Dunkirk is a town in France, a seaside town in France. Um, what happened in 1940, May late late May 1940, uh, I guess earlier before that, the British forces, they sent a lot of the forces to France to try and push back the Nazis uh, in the early days of World War II. Um, but uh, they were untrained, they were unprepared. And they weren't prepared for uh, the, the 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 Germans to be fighting on to attack them on both fronts. So what happened is that the British soldiers and the French soldiers they were all pushed back um, while the Germans were trying to were were taking over France in two different ends from Belgium and I think from the east further in the east. Uh, they managed to push uh, all of the British forces. Um, 400,000 of them, uh, which is actually the majority of British military, uh, back to um, the beach beaches of Dunkirk. So that this is where this one week time frame is um, uh, where this film in which this film takes place. Now, um, so uh, the story, May 1940, uh, the Germans have driven the British army back to the beaches of Dunkirk, France. There, 400,000 British and French and Allied soldiers wait for deliverance. The British army is desperately trying to rescue their men before the Germans break the front line. Um, in the Mo, so the film is separated by three different narratives. They intersect, but they and they happen at the same time, but they are three different narratives. In the Mo, a young soldier played by Fionn Whitehead spends a week trying to make it off the beaches as the enemy sent dive bombers to attack the beach and the pier that's attached to it. In the sea, which takes place over one day, the captain of a small boat, played by Mark Raylance, has been called to sail to Dunkirk as part of a widespread effort to bring back as many soldiers as possible. In the air, which is set over a single hour, two pilots have only one hour to take down as many German planes as possible before they run out of fuel. Um, so three very simplistic plots. Sounds very simple plot. Um, and it seems like Christopher Nolan's uh, most minimalist film. It is his shortest film since following. And it is the film with the least background, the least characters. There are a lot of people in it, but there aren't. there's no real one character that you hang on to. Each plot has its own share of characters, but they could. They, they might as well be archetypes more than real people. Um, but the structure is actually by no means simple. Uh, Christopher Nolan has a thing about playing with temporal structure and linear, non-linear storytelling. So you remember Memento was all backwards. Uh, the follow, uh, following, which is his first film, has a jumbo timeline going back and forth between different timelines in the same story. You have um, even in bits of uh, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, even Batman Begins, he sort of plays with that non-linear storytelling quite a bit. So here... You have, as I said earlier, three different plot strands with different time frames that eventually converge um, and they intersect in different ways. So um, it's a very interesting structure, and I can't quite explain why Nolan went with this structure. I think I don't even he hasn't really talked about why he chose three different timelines, um, but I think it's sort of it, it covers the Dunkirk evacuation by land, air, and sea. Um, three different ways that these, how these people are affected, or how three different uh, routes, uh, how this Dunkirk evacuation involved three different routes, and um, and it really shows you the the sort of the intense survival or the the, the survival process these people go through, and even even though they're in different time frames, the the experiences they have is just as intense. 
Um, and it's very clear that Christopher Nolan went the old school way. He's trying to do as many in-camera effects as possible, and he strapped IMAX cameras, film cameras on Spitfires, which, you know, those are very light planes. So if you have this really heavy camera and you're still trying to take off in the air, you're trying to film film in the air it's a very very challenging task um and you know it blows blowing up real sinking real ships and of course blowing up the beaches and things like that um he's doing these real effects um and it's something to be commended in 2017 when a lot of filmmakers decide to cgi everything right here he's using ten thousands of extras he even uses cardboard cutouts put on a beach to make it look like there are hundred thousands of soldiers on the beach um everything the explosions are real and and the planes are real and it just adds that degree of reality into the film so the result is that you really do feel like you are there. It really immerses you into the process. And even the actors say that they don't really have to act because um, a lot of the effects are real. You don't you don't have to you don't have to pretend to be scared by an explosion when a real explosion is happening in, in next to you. You just you just react instinctively, right? Um, and it really asks you what you would do to survive in the situation. There are choices that these characters make, and and you are. There's so little background that you might as well be in that character in the character's shoes, um, and it forces you to think about, oh, okay, if I'm here, this scene, what do I do? What would I do? You know, these guys are doing what they do, but what would I have done? Um, so it's not a traditional war film by any sense. You know, um, in war films, you know, like Saving Private Ryan or Hacksaw Ridge or things like that, you see clashes. Okay, you see two armies going against each other. Um, you see victory. You see fighting, and you see sacrifice, and you see heroism. And here it's very different because this whole film is about retreating. It's about people trying to get out of the battle. And victory is comes from survival. It comes from being able to step away from war. And it's not about killing as many as the enemy as you can. It's about trying to avoid being killed, period. Um, and the whole film deals with the whole... The, the idea that some of these soldiers, they were ashamed. They were ashamed that they weren't able to secure in victory in, in Germany, not only that, or in France, and not only that, they needed um, uh, these civilians to send small boats to, to sail over to France to get them out. And they thought that, you know, some of the characters actually said that they, they were expecting to be spat in the faces when they go back to England. But it's very interesting how it sort of redefines the idea of heroism, whether these people just making it out alive is an idea of victory. Um, and at the end of the film, there is that, you know, very landmark Winston Churchill speech about finding solace and finding victory in surrender, in retreat, in survival, and that they will live another, live to see another day. They will fight the Germans again, that the important, the important part is to survive this day. And it's a very, so in that sense, it's not a very traditional war film. And once again, it is a PG-13 film. So, um, a lot of these violence, a lot of death are suggested rather than shown. I don't remember there even being a drop of blood. Even when people are shot, there's no blood at all because, you know, it is a PG-13 film. And and Nolan said that this is not a war film. This is a survival film. Um, and I think this is what he has achieved here. It is a film about um, a survival rather than body, body count or carnage. 
Um, and I think it's successful at that. So I don't know if that's this might change your mind, Paul. That this is really much a, a, a as much a disaster film or a disaster uh, survival film more than a war film. Um, and the, the 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 way that Nolan pairs ships everything down to the very basic and very little dialogue. I think this film has about half the dialogue of a usual film. Um, a very little dialogue and 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 everything is visual so this to me this is like pure cinema right um everything is told by images everything is told visually there are backstories i think the mark whalen's um uh, storyline has uh, the most backstory and you get the most out of his character you know the most of his character by the end of the film but the other characters the kid the pilots you don't know the background you don't know where family's from there's no scene where the soldiers sit around and go when I get home, I'm going to do this, 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 this. There's none of that. And I, and it was refreshing. Um, and Nolan, I think, in doing that, really tests your empathy. Is it possible to feel for these characters simply through the circumstances they're living through? Is it possible to, to, to feel empathy, to feel sympathy for people you know nothing about? Um, and personally, I think it, 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 it is a yes. I definitely felt for the characters. I definitely felt what they're going through, and I definitely sympathize with them, and I definitely cared about whether they survive or not, even though there are a lot of criticisms saying that they don't, uh, that the other audiences don't care because they don't have that backstory. But I disagree. I think that in the most basic sense of human empathy, you should be able to feel for these people through their circumstance, uh, and and no matter which which side of politics you're on. And if you're, if, if you're on the side of the Nazis, you probably shouldn't be listening to this show anyway. Um, but anyway, uh, um, like I said, I, I felt that the film is tense, it's suspenseful, and it does have a surprising emotional kick towards the end. And especially so, I think, if you're British and you know the whole stiff upper lip thing, the whole, you know, that whole toughness, the the tough Britishness of all, of, of the whole thing, you know, pe- people don't, really get emotional in this film just like british people are sort of very reserved um and and there's that whole keep calm and carry on spirit throughout the entire film um so there is that very is a, is a very unique british um uh thing to the film of course it makes sense because christopher nolan is british so it makes sense um the, the, the score by Hans Zimmer, uh, I don't think is as innovative as um, uh, Interstellar, but it's um, once again Nolan uses music. He, he has all his films have very strong musical presence. They pretty much permeate through the entire film, and it's the same here. And uh, Hans Zimmer uses quite a few interesting elements. For example, he uses the shepherd tone to sort of keep raising attention and never sort of letting go because that's what the shepherd tone does. It, it it sounds like this crescendo, but it never reaches the top. And that's sort of what and it's interesting because I think the script itself or the, and the editing pace follows Hans Zimmer's score. The way that it keeps building and permeating and it keeps ratcheting up the tension and it kind of never really lets go until the very end when the when the score finally goes silent um, for that and that one pivotal moment. Um, and it uses the, uh, the ticking a ticking clock as a motif uh, um, to show that this movie is essentially the whole story is a ticking time bomb that these people don't have that much time. It is a a, a um, it is a. Um, uh, a race with t- against time to get out Dunkirk before the Germans uh, break through the, the 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 front lines. So you have so I think it's very effective. Uh, I think some people think it's too bombastic, but it's a Hans Zimmer score in a Christopher Nolan film. Right? What do you expect, right? Um, 
try and see this on the biggest screen you can find. It's a very visceral experience, and the shots, the aerial shots of um, uh, the plane, the Spitfire in the in the dogfights, and flying through the ocean and and, and through the bombings and tra- and the dogfights. It looks amazing on an IMAX screen, and I've watched this on three different screens now. I watched it on a traditional cine- multiplex screen. I watched it on what we call IMAX screen, so a digital IMAX screen. And I watched it in a tall as hell, uh, full frame, seventy millimeter film screen, and it looked freaking amazing. All right, like I didn't know screens go that high when I saw it on the in, in a seventy millimeter IMAX, um, and and besides. When is the next chance you're gonna get to see a film on 70 millimeter IMAX? You know, not many films are made in this format anymore. We don't know when's the next film. When we're gonna get the next film made in 70 millimeter IMAX film? Probably. Who knows? Because I mean, even Transformers was made on IMAX digital in a in a 1.9 aspect ratio, not the full frame IMAX that 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 Christopher Nolan used. So this literally could be the final time this decade we'll see. An IMAX 70 millimeter film. So you do have a chance, and you have the the means to travel further to a to a theater with this print. Definitely do it. Definitely try and do it. Um, it is really worth uh, the price of admission. It's worth the experience. It's 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 a film nerd stream to watch out a film on that kind of screen. Um, Dunkirk, I don't think is is Nolan's best film in terms of storytelling. Again, it's too it's very basic. Um, it's very much a, a exercise. It's an experimental exercise. For example, the script itself doesn't really follow the traditional um, uh, Hollywood structure. It doesn't have an exciting incident. There's no three acts. It, you might as well actually. It, it'll be interesting to see if Nolan will be willing to to re-edit the film into three different parts because these are three different stories, and you could easily re-edit them into sort of a web series kind of thing where you have um, uh, separating three different episodes. And even though the timelines converge, I think each episode still works fine on its own. Um, And so it's very experimental in that sense. And the story perhaps is too basic for, for it doesn't have the same impact as a dark Knight or memento or even insomnia and things like that. But I think it's definitely his most technic- technically um, ambitious work, and I think it's his most technically accomplished work. Um, and it's really good to see that Nolan never slacks. I mean, he dials back on the storytelling. He dials back on the length of the script. It's the shortest script yet, I think, is 76 pages. But he definitely is challenging himself as a director, as a, as a, as a visual storyteller, more than a writer. Um, and it's a real cinematic achievement. Um, I think it's one of the, at, at the moment it's one of the best films of the year. I don't know what will happen at the end of the year if if films that have a stronger sort of emotional gravitas will take over, or films with stronger themes will take over the will take over Dunkirk's place. But at the moment, it's definitely on my top ten. And I think, uh, like I said, it's really pure cinema in terms of visual storytelling, and it's something that that all filmmakers should try and learn from uh, on how to use visuals to to tell stories. So I'm curious because, as you've explained it, um, it's got these three different parts, but are they being interspersed together or are they shown separately? They're told. They, 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 he ships back and forth for most of the film, but the three timelines eventually they intersect. So one character shows up, different parts of other plots shows up in another story, 
and and towards and kind of a spoiler alert the three timelines do converge by the end so you're clear about when each story takes place because they they eventually intersect and they overlap toward in the end of the film so is it done in real time so for example if the mole story is a week long is the bulk of that done in the beginning part of the film and then it picks up with the sea and starts to intersperse and then it picks up with the air which is only basically an hour of time and towards the end or no no it's you get one scene of the mo you get introductory scene of the mo you get maybe two five minutes of the mo and then it jumps over to the sea so you get the introductory scene of the sea then you jump you get to the introductory sea of the sea uh, of the air so the 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 three the three stories are told in parallel even though they take place at different times and the time frames are different on-screen captions to let you know that this is like at the start of the week and this is not at that same time or do you just have to figure that out on your own? Only in the very beginning, it would say, so it says the Mo, and it says one week, and then it goes to the sea, and it tells you one day, and then the air, one hour, and then the rest you just sort of figure out, because as they inter- inter- intersect, you start picking up clues on how these, these plot actually intersect, and, and then by the end, they, 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 they meet, they meet. And then, then they it sort of branches out again. So so it, it takes a bit of work to figure out when each thing takes place, but you have to wait for it because he does he does reveal when each story takes place and how these these stories eventually converge. But yeah, they, they run they're told parallel, they they unfold in um in, in, in concurrent to each other, but they're at different time frames. So what does he do with the with the um, actual length of each segment? Are they are they equal in length in terms of like if you were to separate them out, like you said, is it like a 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes? Or does he spend more time on one over the other? No, I think the three are, I didn't time them because they're told, like I said, they're, they run concurrently. So it's hard to time how much screen time each story gets. But they, they each get a really large amount of screen time and it's pretty equal. And again, because they do converge, so you have scenes overlap. Sometimes they overlap and sometimes he sort of jumps to both. So you see one event happening from one point of view. And then when he jumps back to the sea and you see the same event from another point of view. And, and so it's hard to say, oh, which one gets the most most time because they sort of meld into um one one story sort of towards the third the, the the last part of the film um and some some and and in keeping with that whole par- con- concurrent parallel plot strand the events are played over again at different angles hmm. at different times of the, right. at the, of the of the film so again this it, it yeah it, it, structurally it's it's very much i would love to read the script and see how nolan uh, wrote how to, how he separated these plots in terms of writing, but um, when you're watching it, if you do a little bit of work, it's not hard to figure out where they intersect and which where when each event takes place. Right, and is there a is there a character in particular who or an actor in particular who carries over through all three, like Kenneth Branagh or anybody in particular, or is it still pretty separate? Uh, well, I guess then, then again, spoiler territory, right? Well, mm. Kenneth Branagh is pretty much in his own. I mean, he's on, he's in the mo. Mm. He is the mo because he is on a pier. He spends most of the film, pretty much all of the film, on that pier. So he is the land. Uh, Tom Hardy is strictly in the air because he's the pilot, and Mark Ryan's is on the plane. It's on the boat. Um, but uh, Fionn Whitehead, um, because he keeps trying to escape, right? So he does eventually reach. Well, okay, 
yeah, the characters overlap in different sections uh, sometimes. But for example, Tom Hardy is essentially on his own for most of the film, more all of the entire for the entire time because he's in a plane, uh, and his actually his face. His his face is only fully revealed. and I counted this. His face is only fully revealed in three shots hmm. because he's in the he's in the 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 the, the mask. He's, he's masked most of the time because so it's, it's like doing, plane, right? it's like doing Bane again, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so it's interesting how Christopher Nolan loves to has to mask Tom Hardy's face. But I mean, he's in the film a lot, but a lot of times you just see him act of his eyes, which is hmm. quite amazing. Um, and Kenneth Branagh is mostly stuck. He's essentially just stuck on a pier because you know his character has to be on a pier. He's not going to suddenly fly a Spitfire and start dogfighting in the air, right? Or he's not going to start sailing, right? So, so by the requirements of the plot, yes, the characters pretty much generally stick to your own plot, but they do intersect by the hmm. end of the film. All right, very good. If you have some thoughts on uh, Dunkirk and you would like to share them with us, please stop by our website and uh, drop us a line. Let us know what you think. I do have a huge, huge spoiler for, for Dunkirk, though. I would have to say the Germans lose in the end. Oh, why'd you have to go and ruin it? Man. Sorry. Which is interesting, though. Actually, the film never uses the word Nazis. They only say the enemy. They only refer to the Germans as the, the enemy for most of the time, and they maybe say German once or twice in the film. So it's very interesting how to use this faceless enemy to even depoliticize or to make this whole situation very timeless. Um, it's very much uh, to, to make make these people as relatable as possible. That it's not only a World War II story, that it's a survival story that could be felt even today. So it's a very interesting choice by Nolan. Beaten up by love, but the feeling still remains. You should know if you want it. It's yours, so come and get it. Right now, more than And welcome back. So, for our additional West Screen review this week, we're talking about Luc Besson and Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Uh, the story here, while working on assignment to recover a replicator, human agents Valerian and Laureline uncover a mystery that involves a long-forgotten alien race and a dead planet called Mule. When the investigation leads to implications that point back to the human government, they find themselves torn between duty and integrity. So if you're not familiar with this property, and not many people in the States at least are, um, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets is based on a long-running comic series from uh, France that is called Valerian and Laureline. And um, this has been, uh, it's pretty well known in Europe. It has been very inspirational in terms of a lot of sort of the science fiction that comes out um, there that's written about things you know, you can go back to looking at things in uh, like Heavy Metal Magazine or Metal Herlant, as it was called over there, uh, all the way up to some of Luke Besson's own inspiration for things like The Fifth Element. <clears throat> so here he is um, kind of taking this property and, as I understand it, using some of his own money to fund it along with some um, crowdsourcing to fund the film. And it's become one of the most expensive films made uh, for the, in the European market. And unfortunately, it's not doing too well and i'll talk more about that in uh just a little bit but um other variations of this again there are quite a few graphic novels out there that you can get a hold of and read 
Um, the book itself, there's a book, one of the novels is called Empire of a Thousand Planets, which shares a similar name to this, though I think the narrative for that is um, strikingly different um, than what we're given here. So just sort of the similarity of the the name, this big sort of conglomeration of space stations that joined together over hundreds and hundreds of years with different alien species and became known as the City of a Thousand Planets. Um, this has also been made into an anime from Japan. It was a co-produced uh, anime between Japan and France back in 2007. It is called Time Jam, Valerian and Laureline. And actually, if you're in the States, you can see this because uh, Crunchyroll has the dubbed version. I think it's about 40 episodes. And you'll see, um, again, a lot of the, the familiar imagery from the comics um, and the characterizations reflected therein. Um, so this film features basically three things. Fantastic visuals, a somewhat solid story, and some pretty bad casting. Um, and therein, I think, lies the rub and perhaps part of the reason why the film is maybe not doing quite so well. I'll talk about each of these three parts in turn, starting with the visuals. The visuals simply, they're amazing. Sometimes reaching um, avatar levels of quality, in some cases maybe even surpassing them. It's really, a, if you liked the art direction and the visual design of the fifth element, you know, sort of the no-holds-barred space opera or space fantasy, whichever kind of term you want to throw out there, this film really goes for that, and, and it achieves it in 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 many great ways. Um, there's a lot of crazy creativity going on here, and there's a lot to like about that. Um, original films like this are few and far between these days, and, and that is one of the bigger problems with this film, with its failure, and, and I'll mention that um, as I get sort of toward the, towards the end of this review. The story is a bit of a mess at times, yes, but it's still fairly easy to catch on to once you see where it's going. Um, from the very first assignment that Valerian and Laureline are on um, into the main plot, it kind of throws a lot at you because it's not just throwing the plot at you, it's also trying to expand a lot of world building. Um, and the, really, the, my, one of my favorite parts of the entire movie is the opening. They use um, a David Bowie song, and they kind of do this montage opening that sort of sets up and explains where you go. And it does it in a really nice... And um, it, it just fe it, it felt good. I was when I was watching that, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm liking where this is going. It's a, it's a, it's somewhat Star Trek esque in some ways, um, but then it's also it's got a flavor all to its own. So I was I was really good going into it, and then I got introduced to the main characters, and things started to go in a very different direction. Um, so the plot, though, is kind of easy to see what's coming. It's fairly paint-by-numbers once you kind of figure out, you know, who's going to be the big bad and kind of what's going on. Um, and, and that's okay. It's still, the story was still entertaining enough for me um, that I was happy to go along for the ride. But the casting, as I said, is really the weak point. And particularly, it falls down to the two leads. You have a really strong cast here. Um, outside of them, you've got people like Clive Owen, 
uh, Rihanna, Ethan Hawke, Herbie Hancock, um, Rutger Hauer, John Goodman, uh, Chris Wu, and, um, you know, each taking up various supporting roles. But um, the, the leads, it really falls to this um, young kid, Dane DeHaan, who I think I last saw in Amazing Spider-Man 2. I think he's uh, played a James Dean uh, biography. He's done some other roles since then. Um, but as I have come to know the Valerian character from reading a couple of the comics and what I think the character is supposed to be based on things I've read elsewhere and what I've seen kind of represented in the anime, um, the character is far too young um, to, to, to fill out this role. He just looks like a kid. He acts like a kid sometimes. And this character is really supposed to be basically, as I understand it, a James Bond in space. So imagine casting this kid as James Bond. It suddenly becomes like a young adult novel. And that's primarily the vibe I got anytime he was on screen. He also speaks in a very monotone voice that sounds like he's channeling Keanu Reeves. And not in the cool sort of John Wick Keanu Reeves of late, but the early sort of Johnny Mnemonic Keanu when it was like <laughs> he didn't really know what he was doing or, or how to how to use you know, his own sense of monotone, how to sort of own that. Um, so, yeah, it just, anytime the kid was on screen, I just, I wasn't feeling it. And since he's kind of the lead character, that's a big problem. Um, Cara Delevingne, too, she's, she was a bit better for me. I mean, I kind of liked when she was on screen. I didn't buy into her chemistry with the main character at all, though. Uh, it felt forced. I never really felt a connection. I never really felt like, why does she like this guy? I mean... It just, you know, she, it feels like she's better than him. And in the comic, that is kind of the way it is. Um, she's supposed to be redhead. She's not. They make her kind of blondish here. Um, but she's supposed to be, you know, smarter. And she's got supposed to have sex appeal and, you know, sort of be a parallel compatriot to a James Bond-like character. And I was kept thinking... If it was just her as the agent kind of going on this mission, I think I would have been a lot better with it um, than the two of them as a pair. Um, There's also a character called Bubble that comes up in the second act, which really just felt like stunt casting in some ways. Not really from the acting perspective of it, but just it the the, the persona that is playing the character. I don't want to spoil it, um, but if you read through the the cast list, you'll kind of get an idea of who I'm talking about. Um, it's just too well known. And it really just took me out of the movie because what they have this character doing at first, it's really like just the character being the persona rather than being the character that changes a little bit further in through a, an additional reveal. And I just kept thinking they could have gotten anybody to do that role. But by getting this person who has a really big name, it changes the nature of the role. And I'm not seeing a character here. I'm seeing that persona. Um, and, and for, I want to say a good 10 minutes, I was really kind of taken out of the, of the movie because of that. And in parallel, there's a great scene of a classic scene from, um, the fifth element, which is somewhat similar, but also somewhat different. But because that character is not a super well-known personality, you really buy into it a lot more. You're seeing the character, performing rather than a persona like if they had cast Cher in that role in the fifth element it would have been vastly different right um so yeah it took me a while to get back in 
to the movie. And interestingly, during the same sequence, there's another character uh, on screen, character actor, um, Ethan Hawke, who I didn't even recognize um, what, that when he was there. I was like, wow, that's uh, okay. Um, you know, that's it's a good little job of acting and some makeup thrown in. Um, and that worked out really well. So it's kind of bouncing between those two feelings in that moment. Um, the, uh, the other thing too, is that this film is a co-produced by fundamental films, which I think is out of Shanghai or, or, um, it's out of China. And we get us a requisite supporting role from Chris, Chris Wu, ah, sorry, I can't talk from Chris Wu, uh, who we talked about earlier this year. He was in, um, he was, uh, Shansang in, uh, Journey to the West, right, Kevin? Uh, Demon Strike Back. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. he was also in Triple um, X, The Return of Xander Cage. So he's been getting a little bit more screen time. He's a former, I guess, pop boy band member. Um, and he's fine. I, I, it was nice. I could have actually seen him taking on a larger role. Um, he gets, you know, um, a little bit of screen time and a little bit of action sequences, and that works out well. And uh, overall, I think, okay, it's a big sci-fi Big budget epic. Um, what's the last big sci-fi big budget epic that we saw? That was Jupiter Ascending. That was not a good film either. I liked this one better. Um, I would probably want to watch this one again, uh, whereas I don't really feel a need to watch Jupiter Ascending again. Um, really, this one sells me on, again, the art direction and the vis- visual dazzlery, if you will, uh, more than anything else. Uh, I think I can grit my teeth and bear through the performance of uh, the main lead, um, despite the lack of chemistry, uh, I, I want to go through because there's so much here to see visually in this world that they're trying to paint and portray. And I'm sure there's things that I missed. Um, so I want to go back and revisit it. I don't feel that way about Jupiter Ascending. But those two films sharing this thing in common that they both had really big budgets. They were both these big kind of organic productions of newness. I mean, even though this one is based on a comic book property, it's sad to think that with that film bombing and this film bombing really hard at the box office, that what that's going to say is going to send this message that, yep, we're not going to take on original stuff anymore. We're not going to take the chance on original stuff. We're just going to be relegated to more threequels and remakes of stuff that worked in you know the 80s and 90s for um, years to come. So with that in mind, I mean... Just with that, if you are a sci-fi fan, if you're a fan of science fiction, space opera, go see this. Throw some money at it so, you know, it at least sends a message that, yeah, some people do want to see this kind of stuff. Some stuff that takes a chance, that tries to be a little bit original and is in a part two or a part three or, you know, a remake of a film that was in the 80s or 90s that people still love that we don't really need a remake of. Um, Because that's the shame here. It's not a great film, but I don't think it deserves to really bomb this badly and to to send this message that we don't want stuff like this. Because I, for myself, I, you know, I would love to see more stuff like this. Needs to be twi- tweaked, can make some improvements for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, I'd say it's a solid matinee watch if you're a fan. If you're not a fan, you're probably going to go in this going, what? What is going on? My wife came out and was like, what did I just watch? <laughs> she was like, not really sure what she just saw. Um, so yeah, this is really something for people who love this kind of stuff, love this kind of genre. Um, you won't love it necessarily, but you'll like it enough, I think. Um, so Kevin, you saw this in Thailand. How was it there? 
yeah, I saw it in 2D and it was fine, except for a problem with the screen, which was for some reason there was a constant minor vibration. Also, I have to tell you, theaters in Thailand are very, very comfortable. <laughs> so they are very what you're comfortable. Saying is you slept again, right? <laughs> and I slept more than usual. <laughs> but Thai cinemas are extremely comfortable. I recommend it for anyone who would like to get a good day's sleep um, in an air-conditioned area in a very hot subtropical environment. But I didn't watch most of the film. Don't worry, I watched most of the film. Um, I watched enough to know that I didn't like Dainty Hand in the in the role as much as you. Um, just as much as you didn't like him either. Um, like I said, I think it's totally miscast. He doesn't have the charm, especially when you're going up against someone like um, uh, Cara Delevingne, uh, who is who I thought was much better, who really does have the sass. And again, also, you know, they, the, the character, Dane DeHaan character, keep trying to hit on um, uh, Cara Delevingne um, throughout the film. I mean, yeah, hasn't human evolved enough to know that workplace sexual harassment is a huge problem? I mean, that is a major, major sexual yeah. harassment case sitting right there. Um, yeah, so I, I was quite put off by that, especially when Dainty Hand isn't really that charming that you're wondering why, why does, why is he a lady killer? Why is Cara Delevingne actually kind of in love with him? I don't know. Um, uh, so that was a main problem for me. But other than that, I mean, visually it's stunning. I mean, Lupasson has. It has proven himself before that he can do this kind of stuff, and he did it with the fifth element, which I like a lot. I'm a big fan of the fifth element, actually. So I'm not as big a fan of this. I didn't find it that as exciting, I think, as the fifth element. There's, I mean, that whole, um, uh, uh, um, when I watched that hover car chase in the fifth element, I was blown away. I mean, I didn't think I would, I would able, ever be able to see that in live action film. So I was amazed by that sequence. I thought the. Um, the, the the musical with Mai Wen. Mai Wen, by the way, was Lupa Song's wife, a huge French singer, but of course he was buried. She was buried under all that makeup, so we wouldn't be able to tell who she was. Excuse me, anyway. But the sequence where she sings and Mila Jovovich was kicking ass, I mean, those those sequence, those two sequences are enough for me to remember the fifth element even to this day, I mean, 20 years later. Valerian, I didn't think have anything like that, uh, anything that great. Um, but overall, I mean, the visual was great. Uh, I think Lupa Song uh, put in a lot of his time, energy, and imagination into it. Definitely shows, and 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 I I'm glad that he has a, he's very passionate about this film. Um, and lucky for him, his company actually made back most of the money uh, through P sales uh, and different investments. So he's not in any financial risk of this film. Um, even though, yes, uh, he does say that. The, um, the success of this film will determine whether we'll see more films like this in the future. So it's very important that sci-fi fans show up to watch this film. So luckily, it's done very well in France. I just checked, and it had one of the biggest opening days of the year, I think, in France this year. So Which is, you know, Lupa Song is like Steven Spielberg of France. So it's not a surprise that this big-budget sci-fi space opera that he's made would do extra well in France. But, um, but you know, unfortunately, it didn't do well in the states, which means that that um, that he, you know, producers and studios would be less likely to take on these sort of big original sci-fi projects, no matter who who is it from. Um, and of course, knowing that the, the the financial structure of this film, the U.S. studios would never have invested in this film anyway. 
you know, it's a it's a very um, it's not known source material at least in the U.S. You have two stars who haven't proven their box office meadow yet at all, and it's insanely expensive. It costs 180 million, 200 million dollars to make, um, and it's a big sci-fi thing. So I guess take comfort in that the U.S. studios would never make this film anyway. So it was only gonna be it was only able to be made outside of the U.S. studio system as an indie film. Um, and I guess um, I hope that the financial structure of this film would teach other filmmakers to sort of how to fund their own ambitious projects by going around the studios. Um, but, you know, I was OK with it. I mean, I thought the plot was not great. The revelation was not especially great. It lacked the real big sort of ending, the explosive ending that the film element had this big, huge, crazy shootout at the end. Right. That you don't see the whole spaceship explode and everything this really crazy action sequence and that's what valerian lacked by the end i mean you open with a desert chase of a big monster and you have scenes where dainty hand goes through walls right I, I think valerian doesn't have that final money shot to 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 sort of blow the audience away um and it lacked so the ending felt a little anticlimactic to me but otherwise it was fine it's not great it's not terrible i don't think it's bad at all um other than the casting so if you're a sci-fi fan, I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't come out and watch Dinko, what the hell did I just watch? I was just like, okay, it was all right. I mean, I went along with it. I was entertained uh, when I was awake. So <laughs> so it was fine. Um, uh, and like you said, Paul, I think, I think sci-fi fans would get a kick out of it. It's really not a disaster at all. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snows Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via the website at concast.com or on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing as he moves and shakes. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Um, as I said last week, um, I am immensely busy work at the moment uh asian cinema is currently on a hiatus the website at least uh i am trying to update the facebook and twitter whenever i can so uh in addition to visiting visiting the website asia when i do update it please do follow the the facebook page and twitter account um i'm all, i'm also the uh during the day i'm also the entertainment editor of discovery and silk rope magazine so if you happen to be flying on uh, cathay pacific airlines or cathay dragon uh please do pick up your in-flight magazine and check out the great great articles travel articles entertainment features we have in there in august we have an interview with the uh, writer and director of mad world uh we have a uh, uh when's the Daniel Wu thing, my God. We have a Daniel Wu thing coming. I think it's September, not not August, though. Um, no, actually, I think it might be. Sorry, I'm just confused about the timeline, like when everything is happening. Um, uh, but 
yeah, at least we have the Matt World interview. Uh, we have uh, great travel articles. And when I fly on planes, I don't see people picking up that in-flight magazine often enough. And I can tell you Discovery is one of the finest in-flight magazines out there um, in the world, not just because I work there, but because I, I fly enough to know what other, other in-flight magazine look like. So um, truly, truly try and pick up your in-flight magazine when you fly and check out um, what these hardworking travel writers are, are working on to entertain you while you're uh, on the plane. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. Uh, you can also email me. I am uh, at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. All right. Excellent. As always, please do check out our friends over at Podcast on Fire Network. Kevin wrapped up his uh, guest spot there last week. As we said, by the time this is out, uh, it should be my turn. Should be my guest spot for as we close out uh, melodrama season. I'll be talking with uh, Mr. Kenny B with uh, I think the films. What do we cover? Uh, Lost and Found and Lost in Time. So, if you're looking for a little bit of Hong Kong cinema melodrama discussion, please do give a listen and uh, check that out. Uh, we had a good time recording that episode, uh, despite the fact that we were all in tears. <laughs> so, <laughs> for our next show, uh, episode two thirty six. Uh, what do you think is going to be on the east screen side? Of anything of note? founding of an army Woo-hoo. all right yep. well it's either that or the giddens film we could talk about either one but i think you're gonna rather want to talk about founding of an army right sure why not uh i'm a history buff right <laughs> all right so we'll look forward to that i think on the west screen side of things um i'm not sure what i'm gonna get to see we've got uh atomic blonde is out there uh, have you seen that yet kevin I've seen Atomic yeah, Blonde, yeah. And, uh, we've got I watch the, everything, Paul. Come on. We've got The Dark Tower coming out this week, so I'm interested in both of those. I'm not sure which I'll get out to. So it'll be one or the other. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, don't leave the jellyfish on your head for more than a minute, and we'll see you next time. See you next week, everybody. Uh-huh.